0: This episode's guest is my longtime friend, Rua Gilner from Bua Fitness. Rua has over 14 years of experience in the fitness industry in roles ranging from training elite level athletes, training the average Joe, managing high level gyms, consulting in difficult rehab cases, leading education for teams of 30 plus trainers, and designing and lecturing on Europe's highest level training certification courses. Myself and Ru first met each other when we both started our careers at Dublin City University at the sports complex. Back then it was known as a sports club and we have since then been friends for many years. Ru has been living over in the United States, New York now for many years and it was really great to get him on the podcast to discuss life, professional development, pain, movement and PRI. Specifically on this episode, Ru and I discuss his background, Ru's experience with PRI We talk relative motion and orientation. Rua talks about his experience of a time when Ron Haruska, or PRI, put an appliance in his mouth and the sensory impact this had on Rua himself. We discuss dental appliances. And finally, at the end of the show, I asked Rua if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, it was a really great discussion with Rua, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, Rua, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, man. I can't believe that uh, this is like our first podcast. I mean, we be—we should this should have be been done a long time ago. Now, in fairness, we, we did have a good catch-up a few months back, probably nearly close to a year now over FaceTime, and that was that was really great to finally catch up, but it's great to have you on the podcast. So uh, I'm really looking forward to everyone getting to listen to your story So I think you have a really, really unique story. I
1: mean, first of all, thanks for having me, Robbie. And second of all, you're 100% right. This is well overdue. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know myself, I'm Robbie, I actually started out working at the same gym, what is it now, Rob, 18 years
0: ago? With uh, well, 2007, and you were there before, I so you started a little before me, so 2007 is 15 years ago, okay, so 15 um, years I think ago. you might have been, were you there maybe a year, were you there a year before me, a whole year, or a few months, you were yeah, definitely yeah, there before yeah. me anyway,
1: yeah.
0: but yeah, best best part of uh, 15 years ago, yeah?
1: That's crazy, bro. we're now old, you know that. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what? If, if this was like, you know, like, 1648, we'd be fucking ancient. Like, 35 was ancient back in the day, wasn't it? Like, it was like, fucking yeah, hell, 35 minutes,
1: you're, uh, Good job done.
0: Yeah, you're doing good. Like, so, uh, yeah, back then we'd be ancient. But, uh, yeah, I suppose in, in terms of our professional career, yeah, we're getting on now. Nearly two decades
1: in the field. I mean, when you think about it, like, the fitness industry of the States has, like, an attrition rate of something like 99% per year. You know what I mean? So, anybody who lasts more than a couple of years, it's rare
0: yeah it is it is you're right the attrition rate is high but i get i haven't i haven't officially done any research and that looked at figures but i'm sure globally it's it's pretty similar in a lot of countries but obviously because the u.s is such a fucking fitness monster ball because of the population there yeah the yeah. attrition rate is is a huge turnover um as i said they just we hopped on listen i think you have a very unique life story um you had a few phenomenal interviews on some podcasts and I know you'd recently did one with David Gray, but it was actually the one you did on the guy who has fractal biomechanics.
1: Oh, Uncle, yeah. 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 Lovely.
0: I love that guy. I just, I love his, his like. Guy. I just love his whole like life attitude. Yeah. He just, he makes you happy. Like when you listen to him. like this guy, is just so happy. He's just like,
1: he's a genuinely nice human being. We got, we became yeah. friends. COVID.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. But th- that's a phenomenal interview. He did in that And, that really, they're the type of interviews I love to listen to and they're the ones I love to uh, host to and be a part of just conversations and, you know, just really get into the depths of the the person who's who's the guest, you know, in terms of just who they are, their life, how mm-hmm. they've evolved as a person. So that's kind of similar where I, I love this to go. But as I said, listen, I think you have a unique story um, and before, just before I hit record there, I was like, you know, I'd love you to get into, you know, a little more about your upbringing, like, you know, when you were younger. Kind of what that was like, family dynamics. Again, only as far as you want to go. Um, I'm an open book, Rob. Yeah, I know that. I know that. But I um just, I suppose it's kind of the polite thing to say, you know. <laughs> Even though I know, you know that me, you, you're, you're like, a lot of work, Rob, to yeah,
1: know I'm
0: not polite. <laughs> you're, you're like, you're like me now as well. I'm an open book too. But yeah, I love to just yeah. family dynamics when you were younger. Then obviously, growing up in Ireland, I, I, I really a a huge area I'm always fascinated is like when people make big life decisions, and you made a huge one. I mean, to just and it was really i love the way you told the story it's real like you just made a decision and that was it you were gone there was no like dilly dally and it's so for the no. listeners it's rory left ireland and has has moved and has set up life in america for the last 10 years so i'm really interested to hear just how that process went in his own mind and how the whole sort of obviously going to america and just settling down there and how that went that process and then getting into concussions and your journey with that and your journey with pain and your journey with sort of your own sort of your own self development your own work on yourself what what really has resonated with me is I've heard you say now I'm paraphrasing but you were kind of like understanding like your yourself instead of un, like understanding your behaviors and your temper was one thing you were saying oh, yeah. or your short views and you know you really really went deep in on yourself and really said okay I want to I want to understand myself more like why am I like this and then that kind of led you down to like the concussions and getting into PRI and that whole world of pain and yeah. I just found it whole fascinating so I mean, th-
1: that- I mean Rob knew me when I was younger I was uh, a lot crankier than I am now.
0: <laughs> yeah, but like, like, uh and listen, uh, but, you know, before we hopped on, I was saying we will probably end up talking about, about our younger selves because that's where we initially met each other. But listen, where I'm, I'm not going to speak for you, but I mean, I was a completely different human back then, and that's part of the journey. It's part of you know, your, your, your you know, part of the journey is to evolve and grow, and you know, even when I reflect back then. And, you know, you could always be like, oh, would you tell yourself any advice now or do you have any regrets? And, you know, you, yeah. could, get, you could get into those <laughs> discussions. But I, I, I do think there is something to be said that, no, because I think, you know, those experience, those experiences have shaped me who I am right now. You know what I mean? And exactly. They've helped, me, they've helped me appreciate the journey more to... You know, it's kind of also, like... Mindsight's well, 2020,
1: 20, you know? yeah, It's very, yeah. very easy to go back and tell yourself you'd say something or do something now because now you're a different, more evolved human.
0: Exactly. So basically, it's your whole life journey, all that way from growing in Ireland, the big move to America, and then that real sort of investigation into your own self-development and your own sort of journey on your, your own self-actualization journey, your own self journey, your journey or your process in that journey and kind of the whole PRI concussion world. So it's over to you. I'm not going to ask any more questions. You're just going to chat okay. away and like... If anything comes up or a follow up, I'll just I'll interject when you when you take a break.
1: Well, feel free to dive in at any point whatsoever. Uh, well well, for start with the life journey, I suppose we better start the start. Um, so like my dad died when I was three years old. they thereabouts believe it or not, of malaria. Yeah, he was one of the first Irish people to die of malaria in like the longest time. Um, himself, and my mother were on a second honeymoon in Kenya, got bitten, and that was pretty much it. Yeah. Came home, doctors didn't didn't do a great job. Not criticizing all medical doctors, but these ones in particular, fairly messed it up. I think he had I think it was kidney failure in the end. Anyway, that was it. He died. So we kinda of ended up obviously my mom worked a lot. Um I would do very well in school, but I would I would also get in fights in school sometimes. You know, you have a, a child that loses a parent around that age, they tend to have self regulation issues for sure. Um, but I did very well in school. It was always top marks and everything. Um, and then we moved to Louth for a while and went to school in Drada. Um, and if anybody's from Drada listening to this, back then and possibly now, I haven't been there a long time, it wasn't the most welcoming place. <laughs> um, especially at the time, I was, I think, the only atheist or the only non-Catholic in the school. Which, uh, in Drada, which is, if anybody's watching this, you probably don't know Irish geography. It's not that far from the northern border, so it tends to be a little bit more like, oh, if you're not one of us, you're one of them sort of situation, especially in the 1990s. So again, I had to get relatively good at defending myself fairly fast. And My older brother and me would always get into fights with people. And They didn't like the fact that we're from Dublin. They didn't like the fact that we did well in school. We had smart mouths, which <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely contributed quite a lot. Um, and the fact that we're both atheists as well did not go down well. Um, so that was kind of like, you know, it was always a little bit different, I suppose, in that respect. A uh, huge gamer my whole life. Massive gamer to this day. I built my own PC a couple of weeks ago. Um, I built a couple of smaller, different consoles. I love gaming anyway. I'm a massive nerd. Always have been. Um, after after high school, what we call secondary school, went out to college in DCU, studied common entry to science, and I was moving to apply physics. And I hadn't really done any sports in any serious way at that point. You know, I'd done a little bit of rugby, a little bit of soccer, a little bit of this and that, but never really anything serious. Uh, my first year in DCU, I ended up winning the National Novice Gymnastics Championships in tramp- Olympic trampoline. I ended up uh, competing with the judo team. I ended up, um, I think, on the snowboarding team first year, second year. I ended up, um, what else? ended up on the breakdancing team. Uh, <laughs> I ended up doing like five, six, you know, you know, varsity team sports. My first year, training 35, 40 hours a week, like an absolute psychopath. Um, and then also working nights. So it's just always on the go. I think it was my second or third year then. I would have been 19. Then my brother, who had been taken care of at the time, killed himself. Uh, for me, that was that was it. I wasn't going back to college. I couldn't. I was absolutely messed up for the longest time. Um... So I, kinda, I took stock then for a while, took a little bit of time off and decided I wanted to go into fitness because that's the thing that actually made me happy. Um, I didn't realize at the time that in fitness, you make no money at all. <laughs> in, in general, commercial fitness, it's like, great, you're going to be able to pay your rent maybe. Um, so I ended up doing the Litton Lane training course, actually, it was on in DCU. I remember even I was taking the course, and again, it's not a criticism of, of that course in particular, but all these basic training courses, I remember you know, because I had the martial arts experience, I was realizing that this is outdated material. Like you're being taught from the get-go. It's supposed to set you up for the the, the, the real world and work with humans. That's just it's outdated material. It's not it's not correct. And the lecturers know this. Um, And that kind of pissed me off. <laughs> that pissed me off a lot. So when we were working in DCU, and you remember this, we'd have all sorts of different people with disabilities. We'd have like some guys who come in and be like, Blind, or be diabetic, would um, be missing limbs, this sort of stuff. I used to love working with them because it was a challenge. You know, it was something that I would have to get better for. I think you were one of the other people there at that gym, Rummy, who always wanted to get better. You're one of the only other people there, I think. I'm not criticizing. Again, there's lots of good people there, but you were one of the only other people there who was constantly trying to learn, constantly reading. And you know, we were dumbasses back then. <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have enough of uh, a bullshit filter, I suppose. To actually filter through what was good and what wasn't so we were just trying everything and anything under the sun whatever articles came out in t nation we were like sucking them up because back then you know we there just wasn't as much quality information out there and in Ireland the availability of, of good certification courses was thin on the ground I think to be honest it, it still is in most of Europe what do you do you think so I was saying
0: I uh, sorry I was saying zero I think there was zero yeah.
1: back then like okay. I think COVID probably helped in that people have access now to to online courses, which are a lot better. But I still think Europe in general has a ways to go. That said, actually, I'll, I'll skip back in a second. But when I came to America, they all assumed that I would know absolutely nothing because I was from a backwards country like Ireland. <laughs> yeah, attitudes are fun. Um, yeah, so, you know, went through that, ended up working in D.C. with you guys, of course. Um, we did some really cool stuff there. Um, and then I ended up going private over a contract dispute <laughs> I kind of quit I was like I do not done with this um again learned a lot there um I was loving it actually I was like working 10-12 hours a week in my mid-20s making good money you know I had like boot camps going I was doing personal training I was doing that sort of stuff and then I w- ended up working with uh image fitness training which were a personal training lecturing company that actually did certifications and I ended up in my mid-20s, kind of d- designing a new certification with them. I did maybe a third to a half of the syllabus um, thereabouts. I um, implemented that. and um, was teaching on that course for a while. I started to do a little bit of fitness modeling stuff on the side. I was busy. But I, like I say busy, I was working 20 hours a week. <laughs> but I was you know, doing lots of different things and rebuilding cars and just fun stuff. I was just making my 20s and having fun. Going out all the time. doing break dancing and just training whatever I wanted. It was a great time. Super simple. I was happy. But I realized I was kind of professionally stagnant. Like I kind of I was at the point where I was successful enough for the business that I knew I was gonna get strangled by the gym. They were gonna want a bigger and bigger piece of the of the pie every time as they realized that I was making money to the point where it wasn't gonna be worth me worth it me worth it for me to actually stay there and do that. So I was gonna have to open up my own facility. And me being me, I've never, and this is again not a criticism of the country, I love Ireland. But I've never really felt like i fed in there, to be honest. I've always been a little bit of an oddball. So I kind of wanted to spread my wings a little bit and go somewhere else for a while at least. And I actually had a visa for Canada. I was going to go to Toronto because I, I had my pro like physique card there from competing there. Um, and I had some friends there. So I was like, all right, Toronto will do. And then I started dating a girl who lives in New York. Um, and I was already kind of contemplating leaving. And I was like, screw it. I'll give it a shot. So... I told everybody, finished up all my courses, trained out all my sessions, and I still texted a lot of my friends, said, Hey guys, I'm leaving in two weeks. And, you know, they're all like, You're, well, you're, you're leaving in two weeks? I'm like, Yeah. When are you coming back? I'm like, No, I'm not. But what if it doesn't work out? Yeah, I'm not coming back though. No. I'll just go somewhere else. <laughs> I want I, I just realized, you know, if I open this facility, I'm going to be stuck here. I'll never, ever get to leave. Or at the very least, I'm not going to leave for 10 years until I have it cash positive and, you know, Running itself basically, and for me, I just wasn't interested in that because being a little bit selfish, I wanted to go and develop myself. I wanted to go experience more of the world. I wanted to take risks, which of course is something that uh, having multiple TBIs will make you much more prone to doing. <laughs> um, so from there, I ended up going obviously to New York City. I lived here for a while. I was like bartending under the table, and then then uh, properly once I got my visa sorted out. And then after that, I ended up working for Crunch. And, and I actually ended up getting the job at Crunch because my buddy Darius ran the 54th Street location. And he saw me, well, he wasn't a buddy at the time, but he saw me working out one day. He's like, What the hell do you do? <laughs> You're like, Repping out like 550 deadlifts straight into like, like strict muscle ups on a straight bar. He's like, What? I don't, like, you don't see random members doing that in a commercial gym, you know? So I end up, uh, working there at the 23rd Street location, ended up taking over there as assistant manager, um, smashed all their sales records, moved to the John Street location, which was statistically speaking the worst location they had in the country in terms of revenue percentage to go. Within three months, it was the highest performing. Um, after, I think I think I had like five or six fitness managers come through and just completely fail. And again, not a criticism of those guys. It was a very tough gym. And then I moved from there to Union Square Gym, t- took over there. They hadn't hit goal in a while, brought them the whole way up. And then I had a bit of a disagreement with lifestyle stuff with management. They wanted, they they basically gave us a raise and they were kind of, you know, portraying us. okay, nobody gave you a raise. You guys have to work harder. Like we already do 70, 75 hour weeks. Uh, (laughs) And anybody who's ever done a 75 hour week, if you try having a hobby, a life, a girlfriend or boyfriend, zero chance. You, You can't do it. If you're working 12 to 14 hour days, five, six days a week, there's nothing you can do except for work. It's horrible. Even if you make more money, you end up spending more money on getting your laundry done or ordering food in. You don't end up enjoying your life at all. You're just living to work. And the previous district manager had been very chill with me. He's like, if you're hitting go and your staff are happy and the clients are happy, I don't care what you do. Be, we're actually still friends to stay. A guy called Josh Feldman. We're still friends. He's a great guy. The, the manager took over. It was much more like, it's my way of the highway. I'm like, well, then it's the highway. Goodbye. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I don't need a shit. I'm too old. I'm too old to be working 75 hours a week. So I get 30 years old. I'm like, no, I'm done. So I kind of went private then. Um, And I think you alluded to it already. You know, I was very, very strong, very athletic. Um, started doing parkour actually when I got to New York City just for fun as well, keep myself active. Um, but I had a couple of niggling pains and I, I felt like I was dead ended in my training. I felt like, you know, I get better at programming maybe but I felt like there's huge parts missing, huge chunks missing, stuff that didn't make sense, small certifications I took. So I was constantly taking them. But like, you, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> but like, for example, a very popular kettlebell certification, they, they teach you a certain way to get a kettlebell overhead, which makes literally zero anatomical sense. And you question people in these certifications, not, not being facetious, not being rude. When I question things, it's not because I want to be, you know, a dick. I genuinely am curious. And if someone has a different viewpoint to me, I want to understand their viewpoints so I can see whether or not I need to adapt my own or adopt my own and you know change it around. I'm okay with being wrong every single day of the week. If you come with logic, data, or research. If you come with feelings, I don't care. <laughs> like it just is what it is. You know, because especially in our industry, people are so they're married to ideas, they're married to content. You know, see the most dangerous phrase, it's how it's always been done. But things should change. That's it's a baby industry. We should evolve. So, you know, that kettlebell certification, for example, is saying, you're going to use your lat to get your arm overhead with the kettlebell. Like, so we're going to use a humeral extensor to flex the humerus. That doesn't, I mean, that's not really how that works. And they got very mad at me. <laughs> you know? and that, I, what I started to see with all the education I would take there, you know, these regular certifications is that every time you actually ask someone about anatomy or, you know, say, well, that doesn't really track with, you know, humans, they just get pissed off because they didn't have the answers. So I kind of gave up on education for a minute. You know, that's That had been a big focus for such a long time. But I found it was just throwing money at certifications that were just basically giving me resistance training tools with different handles. Or, uh, you know, it's, it's a slightly different vector or a slightly different loading curve or a new tool to spend 500 bucks on that is no different to their tool, but we're going to pretend like it is. And instead of teaching you about the, the kinesiology of this, the mechanics of this, we're going to beat the crap out of you for two days so you're sweaty and tired and you think it was a great time. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Is the, if I go to a certification to learn, I don't need to get a workout in. Like that is an absolute waste. I'm not saying everybody's on. We should, of course, be coached on technique, but I would assume and hope that most experienced fitness professionals going to any certification have at least some basic technique done already. So that should be a small portion of it. They can get and go and practice. It shouldn't be, hey, we're going to do, you know, over two days, eight to ten hours of working out, and then we're going to talk for an hour or two about theory. That is not what I paid for. I know, if I'm a professional trainer, I know how to get fit, that's fine. And that's kind of what I got to. So I went private after that, but to kind of reverse for a moment, when I was at Union Square, one of my uh, one of my trainers, Tony Wong, Tony's a great guy. He'd taken one of the PRI courses, and he said, let me show you some stuff. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's see what we got. So he said, I'm gonna increase your hemoglobin internal rotation. And I was like, all right, I don't even really know what that is. <laughs> but uh, sure, let's go nuts. It did not work. it didn't work one day and i'm not i'm not ragging on tony tony if you're listening i love you right but this is what happens to a lot of people when they start pri or any sort of stuff you know you're carrying a hammer so everything looks like a nail and and it takes a long time to get good at the testing portion and also a long time to get good at actual assessment and there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle but the way tony is explaining it to me it piqued my interest. It sounded like something different. It definitely wasn't something that I was, I was previously aware of, like this inherent asymmetry. And and straight off the bat, because I had the, the martial arts experience, uh, if, if I didn't mention it, I met a second-hand black belt in Ming Shuang Kung Fu. Did some kickboxing, judo, some taekwondo, some jiu-jitsu, a little bit of Thai boxing. Uh, I used to fight a little bit of bare-knuckle, um, all the fun stuff. And currently started and suck at BJJ. Uh, <laughs> won't suck for long, but currently do. Um, yeah, so from that, I kind of knew a little bit about breathwork. Um, I'd studied under you know, the Grand Master of the World from Inishuang Kung Fu, and he'd introduced the Qigong. Uh, I'd read a lot of the research on it. And, you know, there's a lot of fairly compelling research on it. And this seemed adjacent to that. So I was like, okay, I'm interested enough to go and try it. So I took the, the myokinematic course. I think I took the online course first. And I was maybe an hour into it, and I realized I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> I was like wow my anatomy I thought I was great at anatomy nah I didn't I don't really know much about the relationships with joints bones I, I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did not that hurt my soul so I, I kind of made a little resolution myself that I had to at least take the three primary courses and then if nothing else my anatomy and my application anatomy would get a lot better and what I found was I was able to solve problems with these tools that Everyone else had just thrown off these vague, ambiguous platitudes like, "Oh, everybody's body's different." But every time I hear that, I want to smack someone in the face. Because yes, everybody's body is different, but most bodies are fairly similar. <laughs> like, you know, I've worked with a couple of contortionists. They have literally very different bodies. You have people, you know, who have, mo- have two facets to knee joint, People have three facets to knee joint. People have different articular structures. That's a real thing, right? They'll have Inherently more or less stability to join, sure. You can get these contortions though, some of them have ball and socket knee joints. Like it's insane the things they can do. That's someone whose body is different. They need they need very, very different training than Joe normal, you know. But for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, most people are fairly similar. Right? It is what it is. Um, and I just got so pissed off with the acceptance of injury and acceptance of pain because I was seeing, you know, a lot of people who bench press, you go into most places and ask everybody bench press. who here has shoulder pain or has had significant shoulder pain, almost every hand goes up. And <clears throat> I was kind of at that point where I'm like, all right, I'm in my 30s now. Do I keep lifting heavy? Like, th- there has to be a point when lifting heavy is going to result in injury if there's a technique leak. <laughs> you know, like, how strong is too strong? How strong is strong enough? And I'm those are not rhetorical questions. I don't know. Like, I think when I was there, it was about 180 pounds. Uh, trap bar deadlift, I could pull like 640, 650. Um, you know, nonsense weights. Um, benching like 360, 370. Uh, like s- Dipping with body weight plus for reps, like stupid stuff. But I was always like a little sore, a little achy. And I realized you know, in my 30s, it's going to start catching up and something's going to tear, something's going to give structure. And I think that is a thing that people don't think about. We've got to, we've got to get stronger, but like, for what, right? If you're a wreck, I'm not criticizing anybody. If you're a recreational gym goer, what are you getting strong for? If if like, if like our goal is health, if our goal is hypertrophy, if our goal is reducing all cause mortality, it's getting lean, if it's aesthetics, if it's body composition, where's the cutoff point where we say, the risk is not worth the reward. Is it 1.5 body weight? Is it twice body weight? It's 2.2. I don't know, but we have to make that decision for ourselves. I think, and I think it's a decision that people don't make often enough. You need to stop and say, "Well, I'm strong enough. Let me work on other fitness qualities now: strength, endurance. It doesn't matter. Take any minute. We could have that conversation all day. Of what other fitness qualities we could get? But what i was also finding is, the stronger I got, the less athletic I got which was a great concern to me. Like I mentioned, I was doing parkour. And one of the girls, Fiona, she would say that I was like a, uh, a rhino or a bulldozer because, you know, it was <laughs> 200 pounds flying through the air. So if like, we had a setup and I hit it, everything would just explode if I didn't land properly. And I realized I was just losing the ability to actually dissociate a starter from the sacrum. I was just getting stiff. You know, I was very, very powerful, but I wasn't good at sport anymore. And obviously that, that's something I'd noticed a lot of the really strong guys I knew. Yeah, they were great at squatting, benching, and deadlifts in the big three and a couple other movements, but they sucked at everything else. Like everything else. And again, where's that where's that trade-off? You know, where's the risk versus reward kind of continuum end for you? And that's something we have to ask people. As If you're an athlete, we have to ask them, what's strong enough for your sport? And after that, are we wasting time or are we being less than efficient with your, with your time? For general pop, it's like, What's more important to you? Being able to go play with your kids and, and do your recreational sports, like to do with the boys kick around on the weekend, or being jacked and potentially jacked up and sore? There has to be a point where we go, that's enough. And unfortunately, because of all the steroids and PEDs in the media and in fitness magazines and in movies, everyone thinks they, you know, they're gonna be 220 pounds and five ten and jacked, and it's literally impossible without drugs. Like, most people, it's is a ter- terrible thing to say, most people will be very disappointed in their own potential. <laughs> you know, when they, I say, when they stack it up versus Hollywood, they'd be very, very disappointed. But similarly, if they were at their potential, they would be, feel very happy, very athletic, and they would look fantastic. I think bridging that gap was something that I, I thought I had to do. So, you know, I was getting all these eggs from lifting, and I started doing this pure eye stuff, and all of a sudden I was getting ranges of motion back then. You know, traditional fitness told me I need to stretch for years for. I gotta keep stretching, gotta keep stretching. I could do front splits both sides, I could do side splits both sides, you know, I could do like skin the cats and the rings very simple, very, very easy. I could do dislocates on the rings. My shoulders still hurt, my back still hurt, my knees still hurt when I squatted heavy. Um that pissed me off. It did. So when I found something that, you know, started to give me a system of understanding how these things worked and how they are related, I was very much interested in it. And that said. GRI is not geared towards weightlifting. And I get pissed off every time a trainer takes it and says, they don't even lift weights. Of course they don't. It's primarily (laughs) primarily aimed at physical therapists and people in that realm for improving movement qualities and capabilities. Now, does that often correlate to pain reduction? Almost always. Almost always. Like anytime we have, of course, sorry, just before we get there, I want to address one thing. People talk about when we talk about pain. People love to, to jump on pain science. Pain is multifactorial. Yeah, everyone knows that. <laughs> like, pain being multifactorial doesn't dismiss our responsibility to address the factors that we can address. We like playing Russian roulette and keeping all the bullets in the gun. Right? Woohoo, how's this going to go? Dumbasses. <laughs> of course, there are psychological, cultural, sociological, genetic, epigenetic, dietary etc factors involved in pain and pain perception of course other biomechanic factors other neurological factors other neuromuscular factors 100 and anybody who says otherwise is honestly just ignoring the, the vast body of literature and number two kind of being a dick so we take the bullet out of the gun that we can take out if i have someone to come see me who i think i need to refer to a psychologist i do it's that simple if i think they have You know, crazy movement apprehension is primarily psychological. I'm going to toss into the psych as well. We're going to talk back and forward. If they have an acute injury, I'm hands off. Go see one of my physical therapist buddies who's phenomenal at that. That's not my bag. You tore something, I can't help you. Go see them. You have a chronic movement issue that's causing a limitation in movement and or potentially pain, I got you. No problem. You have an issue where you're a big, strong guy who can't apply power, I got you. So we talk about like these things, we talk about movement. Um, And again, powerlifters think I hate them (laughs) because powerlifters are the best example for me. I don't hate powerlifting. I train several powerlifters, nothing against it. I think it's a great sport to do. I've never heard a community so butthurt that everybody else won't train like them though. Like sprinters and, and GA players and boxers don't go, everybody should train like us. No, because they don't they don't need to do your sport. So stop, <laughs> just stop. You can talk about not having an arch in a bench press, for example, and people jump down your throat, the strongest guys in the world do this. The strongest guys in the world also do tons and tons of drugs. They also have very short-lived careers and almost all of them have very severe injuries throughout those very short careers. So if you wanna emulate them, that's fine, but that's a choice. And Every specialization and choice comes with a sacrifice. The sacrifice may be your health. For most people, I mean, Gen population grandma trying to get fit. Does she need a massive arch in her bench press? Yeah, probably not. Like, probably not. And that's before we even get into the respiratory and neurological, you know, ramifications of being in those positions for extended periods of time. That's just purely based on the results. Does grandma need the bench? She, she should do some horizontal pushing. Sure. Does it need to be a, an arch bench press? No, absolutely not. Um. Anyway, I don't. <laughs> I digress. Um. So I took my three primary PRI courses, and I was like, wow, I learned so much here, and my head hurts, and I feel like I'm the stupidest person in the room all the time. But that means I'm in the right room. Because I found previously in most of the courses I was in, I was probably one of the most educated people in the room, at least on those topics. And I hate that. (laughs) I can't get better being around people I'm as good as. It's not possible. Not in any significant way. I need to be around people who know more than I do about a different thing. So I kind of dived in. I took 22, 23 of the PRI courses. Um, just dived in for like five years straight what, what are we
0: talking uh, uh sorry uh, Rua, what, what are we talking timeline here so what do you remember the year when you did the primary and then like subsequently with all the other courses you've done like so do, do you like is there a timeline you can fit us I in there i
1: think i think I started maybe six years ago was, i think it was maybe six years ago so maybe seven i don't know i'm getting old my memory's not what it used to be <laughs> i think it was like six years ago I took the the my okay, and then immediately booked four or five more courses.
0: So, so like, uh, I mean, this this is uh, like you you've you've like, that's a very expedited learning curve that you've went on in, in a fairly short period
1: of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know a lot of people take you know a course of two a year or a course a year. I was absolutely thirsty to get the bottom of this stuff. I wanted to know. I wanted to know why it wouldn't always work for me. I wanted to know why it worked for some people. I wanted to know what the root mechanics were behind this. I want to understand the brains role in these things because I want to have answers for my clients. I want to help people. That's all I've ever wanted to do is just go out and help people as much as I can. And anybody who knows me on a personal level knows, yeah, I'm a grumpy asshole, but I do love to help people, even if I'll rag on them later for it. <laughs> um, that's, I just like doing it. So I was finding all you know the clients with long-term injuries or long-term issues that I couldn't resolve through stretch or or the the great advice. Have you tried stopping doing it? <laughs> Don't do your sport. Don't pay. like someone comes in with a low back injury. Okay, we're not doing any lower body forever. Uh, it seems like it seems like kind of a, an issue there. <laughs> and that's what I have seen very often, right? I wanted to have answers for that. Um and then it gets even more disturbing when you look at literature for a lot of these things as well. Like looking at the literature for labral tears, I had a couple of clients who was younger who had labral tears and they came to me. And, you know, we have to train pretty much as if they didn't have a labral tear. We look at the the statistics on surgical repair of labral tears and they found that like 90% of people-ish who had a right labral tear with pain had a left labral tear with no pain. And then you kind of go, well, is label labral tear the cause of the pain then? Or is that a normal thing you're going to find in a healthy athletic human being? Turns out it's fairly normal to have a labral tear obviously a, a complete labral separation is a different thing that may require a surgical repair but a small labral tear is not necessarily a you know a, a positive indication for surgery it can be often managed otherwise and same thing with a herniated disc in fact the most spontaneously herniated disks or say the most, the most seriously herniated discs have a much higher likelihood of spontaneously de and also most healthy people have a herniated disc or two again but when you get in there and you have these confirmatory views of MRI findings. That okay, this is I found a thing. Let's just chop that, move it around, and see what happens. The literature on, on the results of these things is typically, and also anecdotally speaking, the clients who had, have had these surgeries, they weren't getting better. They're feeling great when they're on painkillers because you know plots, uh, plot twist. They're on painkillers. Like they tend to feel good when nothing. <laughs> you can't feel anything. So I was having all these all these kind of thoughts about this, and honestly, I, I thought about dropping out of the industry entirely prior to finding PRI. So I just found, like, I was in this fucking dead end where I'm like, I'm not learning anything. I'm paying to not learn anything. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, you have to you have to do a certain amount of CEUs to keep your certification current. And I just found every year I was spending money and doing stuff that I wasn't learning anything. If anything, I felt like I was getting stupider being in the room with a regurgitating pure nonsense. And then you have just all these absolute charlatans out there selling people stuff that doesn't work constantly. And it just pissed me off. And I was so close to leaving the industry before FMPRI. I just couldn't I couldn't do the early nights, say so the early mornings, the late nights. and just did constant bullshit. Like, if I have to hear one more person saying, you know, do what feels good for your body, I'm like, as a professional, that is the worst advice I've ever heard. Like, if you knew what felt good for your body, you wouldn't be in here looking, talking to me in the first place. But, you know? Like, if you knew what to do, like, I worked with a lot of Broadway dancers that say, I know my body. No, you don't. That's why you're in pain all the time. Your feet are smashed up. Your hips are jacked up. Your spine is half is not your spine is not in a great position it's causing a ton of pain and you have to smoke tons of weed every night to go to sleep you don't know your body you it,
0: it, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, you, I I I'm again I never want to make assumptions but I'm assuming that you you've seen these uh these clients in your in your life and for me it's usually been females like hypermobile females Oh, it gosh. just it, it just goes to you talking about people you know saying oh i know my body and yet they're in pain you get those females and they always go i love cracking my my like and they're, they've got really bad low back pain right like yeah. i love cracking my low back you know that stretch where you lie down and you bring your leg across and it goes crack crack crack, crack and, oh i love that and I, you'd be there thinking like yeah that's probably the worst thing you can keep doing because you, <laughs> yeah
1: exactly yeah you just like, keep
0: like yeah. re mobilizing that area and that area is mm-hmm. like screaming out for some motor
1: control like it's yeah, it makes, me, it makes me sad. And unfortunately, it was a ring joke to myself and some of my clients now. It's like, if you really hate your kid, put them to gymnastics and dance. <laughs> if you really hate your kid, you want to have a terrible life later. And anybody who's watching this, don't get your knickers in a twist. I'm joking. But to an extent, there is some, some validity there. When we have that ligamentous laxity, it's hard to manage. It can be managed, but it takes a lot more work than someone who's stiff. A lot more work.
0: Sorry, just another one that I read that, PRI that I'm very grateful for learning from PRI, like I mean for years, and I'm not picking on Kelly Storette now, but you know the way the couch stretch became a big thing there about awesome. eight ten years ago, yep. even, even before Kelly now hip flexor stretching was a big thing, like and yep. you know everyone was doing the hip. And listen, I done it, and yeah. we thought, and we all we all thought the further you went into it, but yet like if you took a snapshot from the side, you all you were seeing was this massive low, lower doses. Yep. you were just hanging off the ligaments in the front of your hip and you yeah. were oh i'm getting a great stretch
1: here in my hip influences now. all these chicks with their asses out they could teach us how to do a good couch stretch
0: <laughs> but I, like but I now obviously i train in, in a fly fit here in ireland and it's a great gym actually and um mm-hmm. i have to say before covid like i hadn't trained in a commercial type gym for oh, probably since i worked in dcu like you know so mm-hmm. we we're talking about 10 12 years and i i was pleasantly surprised by actually the quality of what i was seeing in flyfit like it, that's so nice. yeah no like uh, like again you still you still see some outrageous things like, like oh, <laughs> but like that's your you know that's just part of part and parcel of a commercial gym but overall it's yep. good but sorry the point I'm getting to is like you still see people cranking out those types of hip flexor mm-hmm. stretches and uh, like but i i remember for years like getting football players hurlers and i was getting them to do the hip flexor stretch and yet they'd still be you know, and they and they a lot of them would have that the you kind know, of the snapping hip or the clunking hip. And yep. now I know better now. I was like, Oh my god, like I was actually putting fuel on Incredible. a fire. Yeah, I was yep. putting fuel on a fire there. So that, that's mm-hmm. just something I really appreciate from PRI when you know you learn that about the the ligament laxity in the front of the hip. You know, when they teach as well the yeah. Thomas the Thomas test, you're like, yeah, he shouldn't be he can't adduct, he shouldn't be able to do that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there should be no extension that we can't adduct because they're like, extension adduction are friends. Like for me, that was the biggest thing. Like, and again, people love to, you know, take a shot at Kelly's thread at the gray cooks. Without Grey Cook, in my opinion, fitness professionals wouldn't be doing assessment. Right. So it's very, very easy for people to jump in there and, and take a shot at him off oh, FMS this. I don't really care. We owe him a debt of gratitude for bringing that. Also, I think I still thinking his pyramid of movement. You know, you know, movement, power, skill is so valid and so often underestimated in terms of importance. So this is, going back to our power example. It's just a great example. Again, before anybody gets their feelings hurt, I'm not making I'm not attacking powerlifters. But if power generation was genuinely the most important thing in sport, powerlifters would be great athletes in other disciplines. And they're not <laughs> like get them to do almost any other sport, and it's like watching a, a penguin or a Lego man try and do it. Right? They're, stuck in, they're stuck in this bilateral extension, which is necessary you know, to maximize results within that sport. And that's fine. If I train a parent, I want them to get, be able to get out of that extension after that sport so they can go and play with the kids or do another recreational sport if they want. Um, in my opinion, we should reevaluate our approach to athleticism entirely and say that, yes, power is important. But going back to like a gray cook type pyramid where we say movement capability or movement variability, which unfortunately is also being a bastardized term when I say movement variability, I mean the ability to get within normative range of motion to both extremes on any joint. Ideal normative flexion, ideal normative extension, adduction, abduction, IR, ER, etc. Right? Just to make that clear. If you can do that, great. Because then you'll be able to generate power, which power just going do, preserve and transfer power to a different limb. That is far more important than power generation. If we have, if we can generate all this power, but in any athletic pursuit, it's not getting to a different limb or to a contact, you know, to a contact like a bat, a ball, the ground, take your pick, someone's face, it doesn't matter, take your pick. If we can't transfer and preserve that force, then number one, we're not going to be very efficient. We're going to be working way harder than we need to. Number two, we're more than likely going to have osseous and or soft tissue issues as we progress, because the force has to go somewhere. It doesn't just disappear it gets dissipated across structures. We get to choose what structure that is, whether it's an external object or an internal object. Because the internal object, we're gonna have ligament issues, we're gonna have bone issues, we're gonna have inflammation, and we don't want that. Um, a perfect example is one of my clients, lovely guy, he's a baseball pitcher. And, you know, he's a collegiate pitcher, he's very, very good, he came to me in crazy low back pain. It took a week or two, no more back pain, but now his pitch is significantly faster. And he got really pissed off because I went to a pitching machine and I can pitch in the mid-90s with accuracy. First time. You know? Yeah, it's stupid. (laughs) Stupid. Mid-90s with accuracy. Now, I guarantee I couldn't last a full game that way because I have no technique whatsoever. But it's not because I'm super strong. It's because I can rotate. I can dissociate a sternum from a sacrum. And I can generate power and transfer and preserve power. And that's what we want from athletes. Full stop. Like almost any athlete who's not a power lifter, not a bodybuilder, I, I know some people wouldn't even class them as athletes. I do. They work very hard. Um, that, that wasn't facetious. It haven't sounded that way. Um, we want power transfer. It's much more important than power generation. Marathon runners. Oh. Me watching watching a runner and seeing them not being able to adduct a the hip. I have had four or five people run the New York Marathon. One of them came to me six months with a knee injury. Six months with 400, a significant knee injury. Every single one of them finished under four hours and... All but one of them finished their first marathon with a pro qualifying time on the 330. And not a single one of them ran more than 11 miles in training. Yeah. Aaron, do you know how many people yell to me about this? Like, oh, you're going to screw them up. They're not going to do well. They're not going <laughs> to... Cardiovascular fitness, right? Like zone one, zone two fitness is very, very easy to build, very, very easy to maintain. After a certain point, we're eking out Minuscule gains for a lot more effort. We're subjecting ourselves to a lot more punishment, a lot more impact. When in fact, if we can improve joint mechanics and stride efficiency, that is a much, much, much bigger rock with much less effort. Right? Like when people tell me that doing the marathon and hitting the wall, I get mad. I get very, very mad. I'm not criticizing lawyers out there either, guys. I'm saying nobody should hit the wall in a marathon. Nobody. Like, Let's look at the calorie burn of a marathon let's say a fast race pace you're gonna burn six seven hundred calories an hour that's a, that's a very fast pace it's a very fast running pace so if you're spending four hours running your race you're getting to 2400 2800 calories right that's a, that's a fair amount of calories great at that race pace you're probably burning 15 percent from fat thereabouts maybe five to ten percent from protein and 75 percent carbohydrates if we're well carbohydrate adapted and if we're appropriately glycogen loaded which is not eating a bowl of pasta the night before the race for anybody who does that <laughs> there's an actual whole procedure to it, it takes some time takes a couple of days to do this you need to stop running for a couple of days and do nothing and let that glycogen absorb it and be taken so the average person can hold what between four and seven hundred grams of glycogen between the liver and muscles and muscular person more than that so if we've got we'll say an average of 600 grams of glycogen so if we have 2400 calories worth of carbohydrates available to us and the maximum we should be burning, realistically speaking, at a very fast pace, is close to 2,800, and we're getting 25% from from, uh, fat and protein, why the hell is anybody in the wall? They shouldn't be. It's inefficiency. They are leaking calories here. (laughs) They are just not using their stride appropriately. That's the only reason. Also, obviously, they're not preparing dietarily either, but the biggest rock for me, if we're going to take however many thousand steps, why don't we optimize the step efficiency, the stride length, the ability to use the potential energy and rebound appropriately, so we have to do a lot less work? Like, when, What happens to most people is they do great for the first couple of miles, and the, because they lack the ability to absorb force appropriately, getting hip extension, adduction, internal rotation, or landing phase, they, those muscles get locally fatigued, and now they they running like a minotaur for the, for the rest of the race. They are fighting gravity so hard, their efficiency plummets. And now you might hit the wall because you're fighting gravity. You're taking shorter steps, more frequent steps, and much more labored. You're not using that potential energy, that rebound, that elasticity that made us into apex predators. You're literally giving a middle finger to evolution. <laughs> like Human beings are made to pump, alternate, reciprocate. Now, with being a dick, you take that same power lifter and put him in that race. He doesn't make it past mile three most of the time. Why? There is no dissociation of a sternum from a sacrum. That, in my opinion, is the biggest marker of an athlete. Can you dissociate a sternum from a sacrum at speed with force? If you can, I don't wanna get hit in the face by you. I don't wanna be on the the other side of you pitching a ball because if you can do that, that's a golf swing, it's a punch, it's everything else. When we take a golf swing, by the way, I suck at golf. I can drive over 400 yards first try if I hit the ball. with absolutely zero accuracy. <laughs> zero accuracy, zero technique, rotational power. That's all it is, and If you can add up to him, if you can bring your sphenoid over your sternum, over your sacrum, and then rotate further without getting into an extension, without getting into a pivot position, we're adding an extra an extra movement to the chain which generates that rotational torque. The way I used to teach this to, uh, to trainers was, I say, guys, who wants, who's, who. Which one of these do you think is gonna hurt more? If I hit you like this, if I hit you like this, hit you like this. Like, and they obviously go, well, it's gonna be one of the last ones where there's like that rotation in it. Like, great, why is that? Uh doesn't matter. We all we don't begin to think, so we get the fact of relative velocities begin the fact that we're adding more force, sure. But with any force, any force transfer. The more joints we have moving, the more we're going to be able to transfer force. It's very simple. Mo- I've seen people teaching things like a Russian twist, teaching. People who teach on certifications for certain golf certifications, telling people they can't rotate unless their sternum is up. That's literally ass backwards. If, you, if, you're, if you're in lumbar extension, your sternum and thakum are going the same direction. That is not rotational. That is how almost every big lift is coached and most personal training certifications and in most gyms. Extension. And then people are surprised when they can't actually rotate. They're not athletic and they get hurt, especially during sports. Like, GA players are a beautiful example. You watch those guys, they run on the pitch ribs first. <laughs> like, low, lower ribs first. And I'm just like, oh, I'm looking at a bunch of torn hamstrings here. Maybe not now, maybe soon. Torn hamstrings, groin issues. Just with... um.
0: Be, as well just my own learning and my own um self-development um and education in in the in the realm of sort of human movement like along with pri i was exposed to to bill hartman's model in 2018 so i, I did bills intensive now i will admit at the time like <clears throat> i am um, just where i was with regards to my own education i was heavy in my master's in strength and conditioning and then, when I took Bill's intensive, I wasn't in a place to really absorb that because Bill's model is very full- on. and I've said mm-hmm. this to I've said this to a number of people. I really think to to really sort of grasp pRI and bill's model this 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 is what I said to Michelle Boland and I also said it to um to Pat Davidson. I was like for anyone who who's like who has never done pRI and they were like right, I'm gonna do pRI. I' be like, right, well, two things yeah I would say two things you need to have before you go into PRI study the respiratory system and know your pelvic anatomy because when oh. I took when I took pelvic restoration it was and it was Jen Poulin like I was like thank god I have good knowledge of you know just bony landmarks of the pelvis oh, yeah. and like and then just understanding like you know what a pelvic diaphragm is because if you don't know that you're you're going to be lost and then just understanding the respiratory system and the principles of like pulmonary ventilation, like and Boyle's law, like pre- the inverse relationship between uh, pressure and volume, like that really helped. Yep. But what I found was that I think then that if you have that foundation, I think you're in a very strong position then to understand Bill's model, because what what like while Bill's model is different to PRI, it is a different model. Did Th- there are a lot of similarities and there. Yeah, and, and, and there's there's like just the foundation for me now. This is for me. The foundation that PRI gave me really helped me then go mm-hmm. back. Because like I only really went through PRI properly now, properly, properly. Actually, this year, I, re- I retook the home studies. I really went through it this time. And, and then I did six weeks heavy on Bills one. And only after I went through the home studies of PRI, and actually I did Ford Locomotion as well, the um,
1: oh, is fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's very good. For Ron, Ron is like full on on that one. Like he's like he was on it that day. But I
1: um,
0: yeah, but but at uh, I really found and I was able to go back retrospectively then with Bill's model because it was 2018. I took that and I just wasn't while <clears throat> while I understood the global principles of Bill's model. Yeah, the
1: application of it takes a long time. A yeah,
0: that that's And the, the reason why this this whole talk came into my head just now was just talking about this idea of. Powerlifters and basically, you didn't you you didn't use this this term, but this is what Bill's model really made me appreciate was that powerlifters lose so much relative motion, they oh, just yeah. they just they just become orientated, and that actually is a necessary adaptation. Like for for you yeah. to produce a shit ton of force, you actually need to you need to sacrifice relative motion and yeah. orientate uh parts of your body because you're you're trying to decrease any sort of excessive variability you're trying to yeah you, you want to produce as much force as you can so with a power lifter, that's the trade-off they got to make like and that's why okay. as, as you just alluded to powerlifting is not healthy it doesn't lead to longevity but if you want to be it the doesn't fucking, make you better at sport yeah it, it does yeah it, well i asked it well in sports where you need relative motions but it, just like you said with, the, with the ga players that's that's essentially what's happening. You're seeing these grinds and hamstrings, and it's because you're getting like a generation to now, or the last two generations of GA players who have gone from working on farms to working in offices. By the way, guys,
1: if you don't know what a GA player, it's a Gaelic Athletic Association. It's an Irish oh, yeah. sports. Yeah, sorry, if you, you guys. Guess, don't know. Yeah, the international <laughs> listeners. If you don't know what yeah. it is, just
0: just go to YouTube and type in h u r l i n g hurling Herline, or g a e l i c Gaelic football, and you'll see it and. I have no doubt. If you've never seen hurling before, your mind's going to be blown. It's like
1: out. lacrosse for men. Yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: it's it's lacrosse. It's a it's a hybrid between lacrosse, field hockey, a, a, and baseball, and it's just it's amazing. It's um, it, it is no, no. We're with are talking boys' but I, I really think our, I really do think hurling is a phenomenal sport. But what 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 I've seen is that you get this generation or two of GA players who've moved from like this agricultural upbringing where they worked on a farm and they got loads of movement fertility just by their daily yep. activities to working in an office, where now that sternum and and the and the sphenoid and then whatever going on at their orbitals and it their visual system, Everything yeah, they're just, that's the word, that's the word right there, it. Sagittalized. And then you just alluded to it now they go into these strength and conditioning coaches who who like.
1: Uh, and it, it was, well-intentioned there's no malice exactly. they're doing the best with the tools that they have it's not a criticism of them
0: absolutely a... absolutely couldn't have said it better well-intentioned to, to, you know really at, in their heart think they're doing the best and you know they, they're they're just using the model that they currently have and it's like okay we're gonna get these guys strong through good <laughs> traditional strength training and i i you haven't said this but like i, I i'm you can answer this after i say it but like strength training still is a massive part of athletic yes, preparation.
1: Right. I'm not it, saying we shouldn't do strength training, I'm saying we yeah. should change the strength training.
0: Exactly, and and also there's, and you, you've you alluded to this too, there's just a diminishing return to it, like going back to like, you know, strong, strong, it's like, like of course you want to be strong but it's like there's a point where, okay, you're fine now, you don't need to keep pouring more water into that bucket. We can... That's exactly
1: and especially at the cost of movement. Exactly. Especially, especially yeah. for a field athlete. Your yeah. movement is your bread and butter. Yeah. It doesn't matter how strong you are if you can't apply that strength within movement.
0: Yeah, and that, sorry, and, and this is this is why I started this whole sort of segment of me interrupting. Sorry about that. Was Not that you, you? You just remind me of this ori- orientation versus relative motion, orientation versus mm-hmm. relative motion, and that. And again it's it's like it's like when people talk about like the sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system and everyone thinks oh sympathetic's the bad one and parasympathetic's good it's like no no no, no. you need both it's just like you know it's it's just there's context to it so it's the same with orientation like when people hear oh orientation is bad cuz you've lost motion, emotions like no orientation is very important when you it's have necessary
1: to... and then it's not and yeah then it is And then it's not not. able to do both.
0: Yeah. And you used the word there a little while ago. You need to be able to reciprocate, move in, alternate in, and out. Like they're very important words. Like if you even look at maximal sprinting, you better have a lot of relief motion to get into the position to when oh, you yeah. strike the ground. But at that moment yep. when you strike the ground, you want orientation. You want yep. everything. You want like as in like the the ground contact where like Franz Bosch would say like you know you're actually isometric. And some people say well is it isometric or is it quasi isometric? But at the point where your foot contacts the ground and you're putting if multiple you times, it up, it's an isometric. Exactly, exactly. You, you but if, if and you're putting multiple times body weight through the ground, it's like you want your body to just or for like the splittest moment in time, yep. everything just orientate and then go back to relative motion. Yeah, yep. so, you can, so you can find that space and then orientate. And it's like, but, uh, but the way you're alluding to is 100% correct, where too many people are they're too orientated they've lost relative motion. Yes. And you, your example of sphenoid sternum uh, and the um, the sacrum, the sacrum yeah. Like it's just like so, and I'm probably I'm probably guilty. Of this stuff we can't move those, you know, we, we can't move those independently, and we've lost those relative motions, and then <laughs> injuries then are gonna occur the groins, the hamstrings. So yeah, just this concept of relative motion orientation, that just came to my mind, and that that was one thing I really appreciated from Bill's model, and the only reason I couldn't understand Bill's model now was the foundation of PRI. So that was a bit of a, a rant
1: there. There's a whole bunch of people who when I talk, when I talk about PRI, they'll like, well, go, "PRI thinks extension is bad." I'm like, if you heard that, you didn't understand a word they said. They don't think anything is bad. They think being stuck in any position is bad, and this is what I've had this conversation so many times. Like, yeah, but what about people who are stuck in flexion? I've never seen one. I've seen people who are stuck in, in a flexion, systemic flexion, like in hip extension on the right side. Um, you know, the, the IR adapted on the right side and con, and the converse contralaterally. I've never once. But I've tested hundreds and hundreds of people. I've never once seen someone stuck in bilateral hip extension. Haven't seen it. And every time I bring it up, someone goes, what about old people? I say, have you ever tested someone who's like a geriatric client? Because I have. I've worked with a lot of them. No. Then shut the fuck up. How about that? <laughs> like when you see an elderly person who's hunched over here, people assume they're stuck in systemic flexion. They're not. If you palpate their erectors, they are locked on. That pelvis is dumped forward. Their iliac are excellently rotated. Their femurs are jacked out. They are just converging forward like this. That's why they have a walker in front of them. If they were stuck in systemic flexion, they'd have a walker behind them to push them forward. They don't. That sternum drops and that head comes forward as a last ditch effort to push their center of mass back off their toes to stop them from falling forward. that That's why I always tell people, if you're not testing somebody, you're not doing PRI because the test would immediately tell you that your eyes are lying to you. Like Within 10 seconds, you'd be like, oh, I see what's happening here. It's very clear if you understand the test. So, so I had to go on that little tangent. I get so annoyed. People are like Peter. I hate your extension. If necessary. We don't. We love it.
0: Yeah. This no hundred percent. And that's something I've I've often heard people say. And I'm the same thing as I was like, uh, That's not what they're saying, or that's not what they said. Or if that is your interpretation, I don't think that's 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 what
1: I, I've been to every single course. Yeah. And every single time, the two words that come up the most, alternating, reciprocating. reciprocating. That means we want yeah. extension.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, it's, uh, it's like that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, he's like, to be great, is to be misunderstood. And, but you you, <laughs> you you see this all the time, like, I mean, you know, you mentioned Grey Cook earlier on, another very misunderstood sort of individual mm-hmm. and even the, the FMS systems. And yeah, I mean, like, it's, you know, you get the likes of, like, Grey and, um, like, even I've mentioned Charles Pollock before, like, you know, like, people talk about the biosignature and all this and, you know, like, it is much easier to destroy than to create, so people just always want to tear yeah, them down, tear exactly. them down, and and even like you got to understand too that like what they developed is all part of an evolutionary process, and that yes. like like we do want to be able to look back and go, okay, that was that was so then, but this probably, th- th- yeah, this but is now, like helped us, yeah, exactly. Like we're standing on the shoulders of giants here, you know. Like gray, yeah. was, like gray was just trying to make the world a bit of a better place, you know. In his mind, yeah. he was like, you know there's nothing that really measures or quantifies movement. And he's like,
1: Oh, especially not available to a one of the mill fitness trainer in a global gym.
0: Absolutely. Like, I mean, but- Greg,
1: no, like- one of Gray's ambitions
0: was that he wanted something for physical education teachers to be able to roll out yep. to just high school kids to say like, okay, you know, is it appropriate for this kid to be doing this activity? And then he just wants yeah. to come up with some
1: easy By proxy the way, measures. That question there is a question I would love every trainer in the world to ask before they give someone up,
0: an exercise. Yeah.
1: Is this appropriate for you? Do uh, you know how many arguments I've gone into, right, about bench pressing? I love bench pressing. Before someone starts crying at me, I love bench pressing. I don't do the big arch. And again, if people always say, well, then you can't lift heavy. I can guarantee I can lift heavier than 99.9%. I bench on a good day, 373. I can do alternating hook lying, flat back dumbbell bench presses with 125 pounds for 10 to 12 reps on a good day, right? The idea that you have to bench with an arch, that you have to have extra stability and the fitness obsession with stability is at the cost of athleticism, right? Like, yeah, it sucks when you go for an arch bench and you go, now all of a sudden you're benching double the range of motion and your weight comes down. Yeah, of course it comes down. You're benching double the range of motion. Can you squat ass to grass the same amount as you can to 90 degrees? I really hope not. I really, really hope not. Of course you can. Does that mean an, an ass to grass squat is, is worthless? No, of course not. It's a different thing. It's an entirely different thing. But I would postulate that if you don't have 45 degrees of humeral glenaral internal rotation, if you don't have 45 degrees of horizontal humeral abduction, you have no business pressing. None. Because with that bar, regardless of technique, Those humeri are gonna have to come behind that thorax. And if you're in an arch, even more so, you're already, because you're moving the the glenoid around the humerus, we're now in quite a bit of internal rotation. If you don't have that requisite range of motion at rest, the chance of you having it under load are literally zero. So you're, this is, I'm sure someone's getting mad at this, but you're almost guaranteed to eventually damage that structure with enough load and enough time. And people get very, very mad about, you can't predict injuries, no, you can't. No one can accurately predict injuries. But that's like a super popular thing people say that you can't predict injuries. Like I always say, let's make it really simple. If somebody walks into the gym and that's bashing their head against the wall on a long enough time scale, will they get hurt? Yes. <laughs> of course they will. Okay, great. What about someone doing bicep curls? Maybe, maybe not. Or a bit of twisting, groin-heavy, head-back motion bicep curls. Everyone goes, yes. Like, okay, so you, you agree that you can predict injury. We just don't necessarily have all the variables for every, every single movement. You absolutely can say that, you might not be able to predict exactly the injury, but you can say that has a higher likelihood of injury than this. Of course we can say that. To imagine otherwise is absolutely facetious. It's just, it's intellectually dishonest. It's ridiculous. Of course we can say there is a higher risk of injury. That doesn't mean I'm gonna say everyone who lifts with an arch back is gonna get hurt. It's not true at all. But also to that point, I think a lot of sports are victims of survivorship bias. Like, just because somebody makes it to the top and is not chronically hurt, which, by the way, even that is rare, does mean that everybody will. Look at, like, the Eastern European, the German, and the Chinese, like, their Olympic programs in the 80s. They threw so many people at the same program, and whoever survived was one for the youth. They knew most people would break under some of those programs, and they wanted to select the natural athletes by beating the shit out of everybody else until they broke. But it's kind of genius to you think about it. <laughs> like, obviously, not ethical, but. Natural athletes will be natural athletes. You can take LeBron James and you can hit him in the head with a hammer every session for 10 minutes. They'd still be LeBron James instead still go out there like, performing like a, a pure athlete. You, pure athletes are born. They're not made. And that sucks. Life's not fair. You can make anyone athletic, but some people are just born with that layer of resilience, neurological and ph- physiological. You, you can't get there. Sorry. And just because they succeeded doing something dumb doesn't mean you will.
0: Yeah, Just... I really do want to get into your personal journey now as well, PRI. So um, let's get into the concussions. Um, I love the story of when Ron put the, the plint in your mouth and yep. you know, he did some eye exercises with you too. And, and yep. like, I loved when you were uh, actually, I won't ruin it, but yeah, to talk, just tell that story. Cause I love like the, the, when you're sharing the experience you have when you got up and like, he was like, well, how do you feel? And you were like, trying to like not overly show how you really felt. So I just love that. Oh,
1: yeah. I had met Ron a postural respiration first. and he, he, Ron, Ron is a very generous man with his time um, and with his energy. He's genuine. He's a very generous, lovely human being. I can't say enough good things about him. Uh, Ron, you know my mailing address. I'll take the check. Um, he's just a great human. He's always going to help everybody. And I saw him a postural respiration. And I asked him, like, Ron, when I do all this exercise, I can get myself acutely neutral. And again, by neutral, I mean passing the table tests. But I can't keep it. I knew there's something else. I knew the primaries weren't be enough for me because it was a complex case. I knew this already. Um, I also had a gymnastic accident when I was like 17 that almost left me quadriplegic. I couldn't feel anything, couldn't speak. Only for a couple of minutes. Like, it was terrifying. And that, that was, you know, a couple of whiplash injuries from gymnastics as well. Whiplash injuries and brain injuries tend to have a lot of similar symptoms and a lot of commonalities. Um, so by the time I got to the secondary course and the cervical course in particular, Ron picked me as the... Uh, <laughs> If you guys have seen my Instagram, you'll notice that I have a picture very recently of like what a cranial torsion, a right cranial torsion looks like. I look like a sloth from the Goonies. If <laughs> you guys have seen that movie, you haven't. It's a classic, go watch it. But like jaw way off the center line. Massive, uh, massive disparity between eye height and eye being like, whoop, um Ear flare. You can actually see the temporal bone rotation. I can't the smile. By the way, anybody listening or watching... Facial asymmetry does not necessarily mean you have a cranial torsion, so do not self-diagnose. It's very, very normal to have some facial asymmetry. When it's massive, you have this huge cant and jaw to the right. That's probably an indication if you have a history of of TBI or whiplash that it's a right cranial torsion. Otherwise, it may be a very normal and natural facial asymmetry. It can be a problem if when you change stances and alternate, it doesn't move a little bit. That can be a small issue, but it's still not nearly as severe as 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 a right torsion for the most part. I just want to get that one out there because after I said that, people are like, oh my god, I have an uneven face. I'm like, Yes, it's not the same thing. It's okay. <laughs> Do not self-diagnose, some asymmetry is normal. Don't don't panic. So I was in that course, and Ron tested me, found out I have like a little bit of a patho neck on the right side. some ligaments here relax, which is also a little bit rare. Um from that gymnastics accent, actually, I think. Um he put a he basically got like a plastic flat plane occlusal splint that he had built up on one side and filed down the other side to give me a little more left motor contact. If I, this is gonna sound absolutely batshit crazy. Some people make pure sense to others. When we weight a lateral heel in a standing position, it'll give us a tibial external rotation and femoral internal rotation, which is more conducive towards, in Bill's model, we compress the compressive stance, and Peter, I would say just a stance on that side, a weight-bearing stance that's appropriate for when we're standing on extension or like big arch back, weight forward, that's more appropriate for a swing phase or a phase, much less so for weight bearing. By the way, anybody who gets sad at that, that's not an opinion. <laughs> um, we, we have a discussion with that a different day, but the molar is analogous to the heel, to lateral heel. It it, uh, it will basically start to inhibit a masseter and temporalis to an extent, and we can use lateral pterygoid to free up the mandible and, and free up some of the movement here. Where the mandible goes, the neck will go. Um, so, also, yeah, it, it'll, I believe, I think it's a bit cranial nerve affected particularly by that through the periodontal ligament as well, if, if, if you're interested. Um, but when we have molar contact, and no also, anybody listening to this, don't go around gnashing your molars together, it's not that simple. <laughs> um, when you get this molar contact, which also, I, I have a bunch of implants, and when you have TBIs, very often you lose teeth as well because your occlusal plane changes. How the teeth interact with one another change significantly, which is unsurprising if you see that picture because my jaw was way out. Um, and if happens during pubescence, it can significantly affect palatal development and a whole bunch of other stuff too, which can be difficult to fix. Um, but yeah, so I had this basically this thing in my mouth. I was like, all right, whatever. Um, I'm gonna hold this here and do some reaching and breathing. You know, I'm still kind of, like, I'm three, three or four courses in. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get this stuff, but like, it doesn't really like, boom. All of a sudden, it felt like the room got zoomed out. Like, my peripheral vision came back in seconds. and I was like, oh, shit. You know in a horror movie when like, it's a long corridor and it zooms out and you're like, oh, wow, they're going to have to run so far. That's, that's kind of what I felt like. And I'm standing up in front of a group of like 60 people. I think it was in finish line physical therapy at that house. And all of a sudden I'm like genuinely threatened by this for a moment. It's like, what the hell is happening? And I feel this rush of emotion. And I, and once I take a walk and see how you feel, and I'm fighting back tears. The, the emotion that came back was... It was so overwhelming. I was like, I was just going to start bawling crying for everybody. I've had people do it when, I, when I work with them because all of a sudden I could feel a lot of my cognitive powers, my very limited cognitive powers uh, coming back. I could feel my emotional processing come back because for the years that I've been suffering from these TBI symptoms, I have been, if you're familiar with PTSD symptoms, hypervigilance, and that sort of stuff, I didn't have PTSD. But they're similar in that you're like, you're so overreactive. Like you're so, even you know, in the moment that you're overreacting. Everything is a threat. And the way I explain this to people all the time is, um, so I'm sitting here, you guys can see it with these lovely bright lights in my face. Because um, it's the only way I can not look at it, right? But I have these bright lights in my eyes, that's fine. The brighter those lights get, the less tolerant them to anything else. So they get to the point where I'm squinting and I'm uncomfortable. Someone starts poking me in the shoulder here, Now, I'm like, get off, what are you doing? My tolerance to anything else, it doesn't matter what it is. Any other input that my brain can sense so will come lower and lower and lower. So if you imagine, having a brain injury is like having someone shining bright lights in your eyes at all times. Without those lights, someone poking their shoulder, and like, what are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. But it's like having this medium to low-grade stress, depending on severity, at all times where you're just ready to snap. And that's in romantic relationships, in interpersonal relationships, in professional settings. Uh, obviously, it's very, very hard not to just lose your shit. Um, but that's what I was experiencing for years. and I knew that wasn't who I was. And it's very, very hard to kind of to capture that idea that you're in your body, but you don't feel like you're being yourself and you don't feel like you have a pathway back to that. Because every time we talk to a lot of professionals, it's getting better now, but back then even, talked to some about TBI, you know, post-acute injury. They're like, yeah, have you tried therapy? That's not me. That's not me saying therapy is wrong. I'm saying if there's a physiological issue that's contributing to a neurological symptom, Therapy is likely going to be a very, very limited avenue for, for resolution there. Um. So I, you know, I was reading all these self help books. I was reading all these self development books. I was meditating. I was taking acting classes, Meisner classes, to get better at understanding my own emotions. Doing all this stuff, and it definitely did help. And I, I would recommend those things to other people. But that little cheap two dollar piece of plastic <laughs> blew my mind. Probably literally, like all of a sudden. Well, I, I kept it. Now, it's, it's not a good long-term fix because at any probably just on any orthosis, whether it's a podiatric, a podiatric orthosis, whether it's a dental orthosis, whether it's a particular set of prism glasses or, or neuro-optometric glasses, the idea is when and where possible, we get off the orthosis and don't need it anymore. Also, on that note, we should do as much work pre-orthosis as is possible. Like day one, you put something in someone's mouth, that is not the move. That is not the move. You need to prepare a system under the orthosis or around the orthosis to accept that. For example, you could give me that guy in my mouth, but if I can't extend that hip, if I can't IR and add that femur, I'm going to have a very big problem processing that. It may make things even worse. It may create a more of a sense of threat. So I, I'm, I'm when I work with, and I do work with a lot of complex patients now, work with people with TBIs, people with Parkinson's, uh, people with dystonias, um, that sort of stuff with a lot of physical therapy firms in Manhattan. Um we're, thankfully, they're the same mindset that we're, we're conservative when it comes to these appliances, and we only use them in cases where they're necessary, number one, and number two, where we've already made several months of attempts, usually, to get someone into this movement variability and keep them there, including home exercise programs and everything else. So I just want to make that note on, on their orthosis. Yeah, so I went up to Mawa I met uh, Howie Hinden, and Howie is a a human. Howie is the head of the AAPMD, which is like the American Association of... Uh, physiological and Dentistry Medicine, or de- Medicine and Dentistry, I think. Sorry, Howie. <laughs> He's head of the AAPMD anyway. Um, and Howie and his son there, Jeffrey, they do great work. So they made me an appliance, it's a, a PRI-type appliance called a mandibular molar occlusal orthotic. So it sits on the mandible here and gives you a occlusal reference. You start to touch it and sense it and feel it. And very often we talk about sensing and feeling. People think you know it's a soft, hippie kind of thing. But the reality is sensation and feeling is necessary prior to loading. It's pri- prior to inhabiting space. Your body will not move into a space it can't sense. So to try and get someone to shift into a left, left hemisphere, if they can't feel a left heel, it's not going to happen. If they can't feel a left ischium seated, it's not going to happen. If they can't feel left molar in the cranium, it's not going to happen. Can't do it. They'll try. And if you actually look, you can go even further and look at the, the literature on visual peripheral contact, Visual peripheral contact, for example, like the studies on this, visual peripheral contact precedes left abdominal contraction in locomotion. When you're walking, if your head and so if your eye rather does not perceive your left periphery, it probably will not get significant contraction left internal oblique, and you will not be able to get an appropriate left stance. And people think I'm crazy when I talk about teeth and talk about eyes. The literature is out there. Like, it, this is not new stuff, it's the literature's out there for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it's there. But it just pure right to me, at least, is the first place that I've seen it put together in a, a cogent manner that can be systematized and actually used very appropriately. That, can, so, I, can, I,
0: can I just ask one question there? You just, as yeah. uh, 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 just to clarify my, my, own, my own genuine question, you were saying to uh, again, you, and you can correct me here, you were saying you can't, you like, you can't represent well you didn't use that word but you can't represent your left hemisphere if you can't feed your left heel is that what you said yeah yeah you're, but, you're, you're, but is it isn't out. but but isn't it uh, you you uh you clarify this for me but isn't the isn't motor isn't sensory and motor output to the left heel from the right hemisphere though
1: yes i see i mean the hemisphere of the body as opposed to the cortex of the brain
0: oh okay, okay fine yeah get you get you get i know
1: exactly we go with that yeah so like the, the right side of his body is sensed by both cortices of the brain and the left side of the body is sensed by the right cortex of the brain. Yeah. yeah, sorry. I was just wondering. I meant like, the left hemisphere of the body.
0: I get you. I get you now, yeah, 100%. 100%. Like,
1: you're not going to be able to get into a good compressive state here. Um, and it's just, you're not going to be athletic. You're going to be, that's very typical, by the way. It's very, very typical. Anybody who can't sense that or work on that and get that lateral heel, it's going to be an issue if you want ideal performance. Get you. So how he gets up there, he takes the scan. He sees he's got a bunch of extra random teeth. Make some crack about maybe that's normal on my planet. Um, he's hilarious, he's just like, he's a good dude. And then, how he sets me up and starts making this mandibular appliance. And they have this really cool, I believe it's proprietary, um, HRV setup where they have you on like a uh, real time HRV monitor with super low artifacts. I'm not going to describe it too much because I'll butcher it and how will yeah, yell at me. And they have you on EMGs, EKGs, the whole lot. So they're seeing the real time neurological and muscular response to getting that occlusal plane appropriate. So cool, and typically they wouldn't show patients that side of it while they're doing it, you know, so as not to influence the response. But I'm like, no, I want to see. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. I love data. Um, so then as they're doing it, also like I'm kind of testing their results versus my results. So I'm doing like, uh, like a self-test on the humeroglenoid internal rotation. I'm like, oh, when it's there, it's there. And I'm like, I was skeptical too, you know what I mean? So I always try to maintain a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, but no, yeah. They literally calibrated my occlusal orthotic based on my heart rate variability change and EKG and EMG change to get like temporalis and masseter inhibition. It was magnificent. It is fantastic, and that's why when I'm using dental appliances, I go to hell. I'm not saying there aren't, but they're good people. But I won't. I don't trust anybody who I haven't worked with personally, or at least worked with the client with as well.
0: I I don't know how how far you can go into this, but um and this is only because i've just seen this um and heard like seen it a little bit on social media um and i've heard it from peers within the field just from conversations this sort of like um and you know it, it's kind of come from james and mike cantrell like this uh nearly like people were like too quick to like prescribe like a dental intervention and like oh, you know and people started to end up spending no, thousands and thousands of dollars no, on no, these
1: the same thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now I I I I've only had a very small exposure to this, yep. but yeah, no, can, I agree. Can you speak to that Because I know with the, with the clientele you currently see, you know you see some very complex cases. So I, I guess it's to say, you know, what like I suppose the, the question is like when when is the time when, when is it appropriate? say all no, like this, I do mm-hmm. think that going down an avenue of some some dental assessment and possibly some uh, appliance because it's obviously because just that whole, anything with dentistry is, all, money. is is money though too, you know yeah, yeah. it's you I don't you, you're to sort be of putting people down like this hole yeah. and they're 10 grand in a hole and it's like you know, we yeah. didn't even need to go there yet there was a lot of stuff left on, like there was a lot of low hanging fruit we didn't address first before we went there
1: You hit the nail on the head there Robbie and I don't think it's as widespread as people think it is but I do think it does happen um like my I actually had a, I was on an Instagram live with Alina Canner yesterday. We talked about this as well. Because we both have very, very similar viewpoints in this sort of stuff. For me personally, the last thing I want to do is put my hands in your pocket and spend your money on an appliance you don't need. That to me is the ultimate nightmare. I have betrayed your trust. Right. My job is to get you as far as I physically can. And that requires me to do my job well, me to assess you well, and you to do your homework appropriately. Um, and then we're gonna go for the least invasive least complicated intervention first, and it's going to depend on the person. So if I see someone in front of me, for example, and they've got a crazy dentition, right, crazy dentition, the first thing I'm going to do, we're going to do our homework and see what sort of resolution we get. It also depends on the human being, like what sort of, what their symptoms are, right? Because there's perfect and there's good enough. And I'm not being funny there. A lot of people don't give a shit once they're out of, out of chronic pain, or once they've got what they need back, and that is absolutely fine. It's not for me to decide how far you want to go. You decide how far you want to go. So, for me, the first thing is I'm going to get everybody in a pair of sneakers that is appropriate for them. That's number one, because it's cheap, and it's a great, great, great sensory tool to give someone what they need with a low barrier to entry. That's like pretty much a requirement of working with me. Is I'm going to put you in shoe jail for a while. I stole that phrase from somebody, and I apologize for not giving that credit. But
0: is there sorry, I'm sorry. To is there any heuristic you could give, like a guideline to know what shoes? What's the first... Well, yeah. The like,
1: The Clinic actually have a shoe list on their website. Okay. Yeah. And it shows you for, for average arch, for low arch, for medium arch, for people who struggle with toe-off. It's fantastic. It's it's a great resource. They update it annually, sometimes more than annually as well. Because the shoes do change from year to year, and model to model. And sometimes, like, what well, was a great shoe one year is a terrible shoe the next year.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of used the word heuristic there because I was thinking, in my head, you probably need to see the individual to be able to recommend yeah. the ideal type of... Well, not ideal, but... What you feel would be the most appropriate runner to start off with?
1: There's some good stuff. Like again, they have it on the on the, the website. But very very often, I want a relatively rigid heel counter. Um, I want le- little to no lateral flex in the shoe at the heel. I want a flexible toe box and a rigid midfoot, and some arch support. It's going to depend again on on what the arch presentation is. Obviously, yeah, a high arch yeah. versus a very flat arch is going to be completely different things. Yeah. Um, I tell people all the time. You don't have to wear these forever. If you get resolution and can maintain the movement variability, well, while wearing anything, you get to wear anything. If you do the work, you get in a shoe jail.
0: Yeah.
1: If you don't, you probably won't. It's kind of it's like the goal is that, that you can go wear your Converse or wear high heels. I prefer Converse, to be honest, than high heels. <laughs> I don't have the legs bro. But if you're gonna you can get out of that and do whatever the hell you want. My goal with everybody, you t- kind of touched on with your orthotic question is my goal is to forget that you had an issue in the first place. So with, like I see some people once or twice and their issues are done. They're very lucky and it is what it is. And it's not fair, some people need more than that. For some people, I'm like, great, do this, do this. Come back with me. Other people, I'm like, we're gonna be here for a while. And then I say, I'm gonna go shoes first because it's, it is giving us a sensory input. And that's, I'm gonna choose a shoe based on the person. It's giving us sensory input, it's low barrier to entry. You're gonna buy shoes anyway. The next thing I might do, it depends on the person. If they're staying neutral across the board, if they're able to maintain these things, uh, if you're familiar with the, the to get adduction lift test, if they can get a three out of five on that and maintain the three out of five, I might never put an orthosis on them. And if they have had other significant symptoms, cranial symptoms or neurological symptoms. I might never even talk about an orthosis. That's simple. Might be like, OK, right, do exercise for a while? And then what I'll do, this is, I think, a missing link in a lot of programs. I'm going to change your resistance training technique across the board to support what we've done. If you go back to doing what you've always done, you'll get what you've always got, because duh, right? But very, very often, people get out of acute issues, and they're able to maintain all this movement, and they go back to training, like, for lack of a better word, a dumbass, um, and just doing the exact opposite of everything we just did. Resistance training can incorporate all these things. Um, So then, if that doesn't, you look at some of the dentation. They've got teeth all over the place. They've got a massive uh, intorsion or a crossbite. They've got a super narrow palate. You know, gaps, you know, crooked teeth. I'm like, okay, I'm going to seem to look at, uh, up to Howie. Harry. And Howie's great because I've sent people to Howie before. And he's like, I don't think the oral appliance is necessary. I'm like, fantastic. Because that's expensive. Um, I also work occasionally with Daniela Rutner over at SUNY um, for prism glasses and optometry there. And again, for most other people, I want them to do a stand-up refraction. And to even find someone to do a stand-up refraction for optometry is hard to do. Because most people want, you know, they use the, the machine, you put your head into it. I don't know what the hell it's called. I'm not optometrist. Um, but the problem with that machine, for the most part, but the problem with two things, most optometrists are going to adjust for acuity, right? And acuity is not always what we need. if Because acuity can often come at the cost of movement variability, which sounds counterintuitive. Sometimes we need the eye to work harder, not to be accommodated. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And then I, I start in a sit-down in a, a fraction, for most people, they're going to be in this forward head position. It's going to lock on SCMs and eliminate all cervical lordosis. Now, the prescription will reflect that and likely reinforce that. So, if we have someone in a crazy forward head position, a crazy overactive anterior neck, and they cannot get out of it, the first thing I might do is send them for, send them for a stand up refraction. Not first thing. Sorry. Once once we establish that they're doing the homework appropriately, well with the appropriate frequency, and we've given her a while, if they can't hold on to those ranges of motion, but can get them acutely now considering orthosis that's the biggest criteria for me i can get them acutely but not chronically if i can't get them acutely i have in my opinion absolutely zero business talking about orthosis most of the time that's my there is a very rare occasion where it's not the case but for the vast majority if i can't get you acutely acutely passing these table tests i should not be talking about orthosis and for me I'm not putting an orthosis on anybody until I get them acutely at least at three out of five and then across get adduction lift test. And that means to an extent they can compress the pelvis and pull themselves across midline to standing position. Because if they're not able to do that, if they don't have that motor patterning, putting uh, any orthosis that's going to help them pull onto that side is not really going to help us because they can't deal with that side in the first place. So we're either going to exacerbate a problem or just not fix one. Once we have that orthosis giving them what they need, we're going to retrain them to that position and re-pattern them so we have that motor pattern. Then hopefully
0: we can start to wean off the orthosis again. So kind of j- just wrapping up here. Um, this we and we can we can definitely hop on another podcast and, and have part two and discuss other topics. Um we can hurt some other people's feelings. Well, you can. <laughs> if player. you any any uh, any compliments send them my way, but all the hate mail goes through. <laughs> <laughs> Come here now, so that all the all the problems. Uh, just finishing up then a little more on your own journey, how much work have you, because the, the pictures you recently put up of, you know, the changes in your own facial structure were, were you know, they were just like, whoa, just look at that. Like that. Yeah, they're, they're like, to be honest, I haven't said it to you yet, but when you came on the call first today, I was like, oh, m-, even since we spoke on FaceTime last, mm-hmm. the difference in your face, like, and That's it's, crazy, right? it, it's well, probably because...
1: It's being only partially hideous. <laughs>
0: It's probably because I've been more aware of my own. Because I listen, we all have. As you said we all have asymmetries, but I'm very because I I had terrible um teeth as well. When when I got my permanent teeth, like I had to get teeth pulled and I got braces and okay. I didn't I didn't finish out the 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 whole term I was meant to do But I just couldn't stand them and my whole nasal everything anyway. But uh, but just with your own sort of um. Personal journey and your your own sort of, if you want to say, reconstruction of your your own facial structure and anything else you've done within your body. Like, so what 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 did you do? Kind of from that from that day with Ron and the, when the vision came back and you went to see, yeah, howie and all that. So, like, what what has been your process over the last five to six years?
1: Honestly, it was pretty easy after that. I know it's not sexy. Everyone's like, oh, I struggle. You worked hard. No, honestly, because I'd done all the all the primary work before that, so it's fairly well prepared for it. So, then it was a matter of wearing the appliance at night. I wore it for like 24 7, except for when I was eating for the first couple of weeks, and then wore it at night for a couple of months. Did all my reposition exercises. And then this is a problem as well, not with PRI, but with how some people who aren't well versed in it apply it. They do a reposition exercise, they pass a table test, and think that's treatment. The treatment is the repatterning you do after repositioning. Yes, so, yeah. Passing a test acutely doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, It means, it, it means you're in the right direction, but you have to then
0: repattern what you've done yeah that that was a a huge thing i took away from my was it myokin no no Mm -hmm. it wasn't my it wasn't my it was either myokin or respiration um it was it was when i redid the home studies this year it was it was ron and james actually teaching it um so it was slightly older home one but um but it's a new it's it's a newer one than the original original one but i think there's even a newer one now but anyway i think have done yeah. a great
1: job revising and kind of refining the course yeah yeah that.
0: so i don't i don't think it's the latest one but it's definitely like the oldest cuz I, I had the oldest one as well mm-hmm. um but one thing i really took away from that was when ron said he was like pri is about getting you back to neutral and he's like yes. then he's like then the treatment starts and yeah, that's yeah, like, exactly uh, that, that was I a real
1: that. yeah
0: that was a like I was like oh like and and like because but it, you know when he said it I was like like I already knew that but I didn't like understand it so yeah it, it the so pain so didn't drop yeah yeah because like yeah. they're awesome about neutrality is like neutrality reciprocate alternate and he's like yep. now you can do your treatment because because exactly. people because th- he's like people think he's like people think this is the treatment he's like we do all this and that's so it he's like no 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 because you're gonna lose that shit if you don't lay it
1: down oh then. yeah yeah for me when you come in three weeks after our appointment and you're still passing a table test, you've had successful treatment. That's because you have that neutrality at rest now. For me, the, the biggest... Oh, you mentioned the nostril, by the way, as well, just when you're talking about your own issues. When I had the uh, split and everything else, I couldn't breathe from my left nostril since I was like eight or nine. Bang, started working immediately. And that left nostril, a left nostril, right nostril swap in dominance is an indication of ultradian rhythm as well so you know uh below your circadian rhythm you have the ultradian rhythm which is like they'll swap cortical dominance and you'll swap between parasympathetic and sympathetic dominance throughout the day it's,
0: push yeah, and pull. it's it's mad you mentioned that because when i go to bed at night often my left nostril i can breathe through and my right i can't and then when i wake up the following morning it's flipped
1: yeah, that's supposed to happen every 90 minutes to four hours that's, that's a good thing if it doesn't happen you are you're more than likely stuck in one neurological state
0: that's, that's not it's not a good thing. Yeah, and that's
1: you know, any ENTs want to do surgery on my nose? You want to get in there and scrape it all out? And I was like, Yeah, I don't think that's what the issue is, to be honest. I don't know why I had that intuition, but I did. Thankfully, I didn't do. It.
0: That sounds horrendous. The way the way you just said that. You're like, yeah, we're just getting to your nose, we're just gonna <laughs> scrape, we're just gonna scrape it out. It's it dremel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the, that just reminds me of like a a, a front a, what's it called? a a front a front. What's the the, the, the a, a lobotomy sorry I was thinking of the frontal lobe a lobotomy yeah. that just reminds me of a lobotomy I was like no thank you
1: so the question you just asked me right? what was the biggest thing I did after I did all the repositioning and repatterning obviously I want to return to sport return to activity return to lifting weights and that sort of stuff I changed how I did every single exercise with, with the FLM course the forward locomotive course and those components in mind so that what I did applies to sport to movement I can still lift strong bilaterally I have a video from like Last, last Christmas-ish of me doing like, like 22, 23 Hatfields at 320 Has the Grass at speed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> like, those things are still possible. But, if you're going, if you're going to use this stuff to repattern yourself and then use a super strong stimulus to put yourself back into a bilateral pattern that doesn't have alternation reciprocation, you have to expect that the stronger, more consistent stimulus will win out eventually. So, why not it's not easy. I will say that. There's not a lot of people who do a good job of it yet. But why not start to integrate the pieces of this that you can into your weightlifting and make your weightlifting appropriate for sport? And that's, I think, that the shift we need to see as an industry is thinking, how does this apply to a sporting situation? You know, like early 2000s, mid-2000s, the word functional just got abused to the point where I just can't, you can't say it anymore. It was sports specific, then it became functional, and then none of that shit means anything. We need to get back to thinking about how this lift will directly impact and what, like, Sean Light, my buddy Sean Light, he's a.
0: Yeah, a, I know a, Sean, yeah. He's been in the NBA. NBA, yeah.
1: Yeah, so Sean's an NBA training conditioning coach, also, you know, very well versed in PRI. And he'll be the first person to tell you most of the guys that were phenomenal in the gym were terrible on the court. There's a reason for that. It's not just because they were working harder because they sucked on the court. Also, you know, sucking on the court in the NBA, you're still great. But, if your gym training makes you very, very good at gym training and is negative or detrimental towards your sport, we need to rethink our whole paradigm of movement and, like, not losing the ability to dissociate one side of the ribcage from the other and do alternating movements. Because the fitness industry has this bone or this absolute obsession for stability, Matter in fact most athletes only need to be, you know, momentarily stable yeah. and then move and rotate and dissociate. That's a great that word. That is necessary for human mm-hmm. beings to have cognitive emotional physiological variability to not be stuck
0: yeah yeah the momentarily momentarily oh, i can't say the word now but momentarily but, stable. Momentarily, yeah. stable. that's a great phrase that's a great way opponent yeah and, and the other word you just said the other word i absolutely i love the word variability Veritability is key it makes you yeah. if you're more if you've got if you if you have variability you're more resilient
1: that, that's simple. Like, you're yeah. more
0: anti-fragile yeah
1: Actually, I have a, a CoreSense finger HRV monitor, and sometimes people come in like this is not gonna work, whatever. I'm like, all right, cool. And we we'll look at the we we'll look at their HRV towards the start of the session and the end of a session, and I can see a massive change. Some people have like Aura rings, that sort of stuff. Same thing. After doing this stuff, all of a their HRV is higher. Their intra beat variability is better, which is indication of their system health. But, You know, you can't lift heavy with this stuff. <laughs>
0: listen i i gotta i gotta wrap up here but this this is phenomenal just great just to catch up with you and and obviously just to get an insight into your life and and how things have gone over the last 15 years since we we first met but um i'll wrap up with two things uh wrap up with the dinner question so i don't know if you're familiar with that off off the podcast and then just finally where people can find out more about you and and contact you so the dinner question interested to, to, to hear your guests so if you could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, and they can be um real people or they can be like fictitious characters, like superheroes, but who would these five people be and why?
1: That's a fantastic question, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it probably the Dalai Lama would be one.
0: Oh, nice,
1: um, nice. I'd, I'd just love to hear his take on basically everything. I'd also love to hear the Dalai Lama and Ron Fuske interact. So I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. Just see
0: Ron doing breeding drills at him and shit, like.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, I would like to see that. I would like to see Abraham Lincoln. I think that would be super interesting. He's a mine. Yeah, nice. I mean, you know I mean? the dude had wooden teeth and was a, a competitive boxer. he kicked the crap out of everybody, and also, you know, spearheaded the whole revolution. Like, guys, he's an interesting character across the board. Um, other than that, it, it goes to, it goes down to like the lower the lower ranks at that point. Uh, maybe Shirley Sarna very very very, very well known physical therapist back in the day. I think that'd be okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, or and Mabel Todd maybe also another very well known physical therapist who kind of talked with this sort of stuff long before it was uh, super mainstream.
0: Great, great, that's I so it great.
1: Interesting, like a mix of spirituality and physicality because again, at the risk of standing hippie-ish, you can't divest those two things entirely. You can't yeah. divest the mind from the body.
0: Absolutely, the body. absolutely. Okay, There's
1: so really uh... answer, but
0: no no that's great that's absolutely really great man and so finally where can people find out more about you and if they wanted to reach out
1: don't i'm a horrible person um you can find me on the on instagram at the biomechanist yeah. um and also bua sometimes people get confused because of my name you know people here call me rua bua is the irish word for victory
0: yeah, yeah, that's um, it's interesting because when you sent me your email and it was Boo Fitness, that, that I was like, I- Is it Bua not, or? yeah, yeah, I was like, Is it Boo or is it because the other thing too is I, I don't know if you know, but there's there's two two friends of mine from actually Nafina J and about just over COVID, they opened up a, a coffee shop and it's called Boo <laughs> and
1: go, it's so and it's, re-
0: it's really it's po- really like it's a really popular coffee shop now all awesome. around the Glass and Evendrum Condra area, like so. And it's right beside Nafina. And on Saturday mornings when we when we train like so there's a thing called the nursery, which is where you train all like the under five, six, seven yeah, year old yeah. kids. And every Saturday morning that place is jam-packed off with the parents, like you know. So Sometimes. it was just funny when uh when you said boo, I said that gas like that yeah, you know, they put down boo and it's you know, serendipity, just...
1: small world coincidences, all of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I just see it all too. They're actually they in in Fisberg, there's a there's a pizza place called Rua or Ua and I it always reminds me every time I walk past it I'm, I'm like I actually took a picture of it I should send it to you because I I was gonna send it to you and say I could never knew you opened up a, a, a pizza franchise
1: there's a bar Rua in Manhattan as well People people like is this your bar page? I just say yes yeah <laughs> 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 I apologize the owners of that place for how many people have probably come in there and said oh, I know Rua. Like
0: yeah <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. Here, that's absolutely great and just for the listeners I'll, I'll put everything in the show notes with regards to where you can find out more about Ruiz so listen that was absolutely brilliant man I'll take away to you offline but for everyone who's listening right now thanks so much for lending us your ears and giving us your time and until next time take care be well and stay safe thanks guys